Welcome to Urban Foundry. All opinions expressed by Andrew Urban, Paige O'Neill, and our castmates are solely our own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Collier's International, Inc. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Collier's International may maintain positions in the properties discussed in this podcast. Welcome back to the Urban Foundry podcast, your go-to source for urban real estate news and conversations. I'm Andrew Urban. And I'm Paige O'Neill, and we will be your co-hosts as we explore the future of downtown real estate. This This is Urban Urban Foundry. Foundry. Today, I have an extra special guest in the studio. Andrew Molnar is the managing director of MR3 Development. MR3 is a family-owned national real estate developer with active projects across the country covering retail, industrial, and multifamily projects. Prior to MR3 development, Andrew was the development director for the Southeast region for Thompson Thrift, a national retail, multifamily, and mixed-use developer. He holds a master's degree in real estate development from Clemson University and a bachelor's degree in marketing and management and finance from Elon University. Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Appreciate welcome to Urban it. Foundry. Thanks. Inaugural guest. Yeah, it's, it's an honor, right? I mean, oh, all of a sudden, I'm looking at this and seeing like Clemson, Elon, North to South Carolina, here I am in Indianapolis. <laughs> yeah, well, how did you get here? Let's let's talk about that really quickly. Well, as you mentioned, uh, you know, it's actually a blessing. Uh, Paul Thrift or Thompson Thrift came worked with him as a mentor mentee situation. So, you know, I always tell younger guys there and gals trying to get into the industry that you know always find somebody that you kind of look up to and see if you can find that mentor situation just to learn from, experience, kind of anything you can just to absorb because when you're green you're you don't know enough and you think you know it all but you're going to constantly keep absorbing more and learning more so that was my i kind of jumped on that opportunity had opportunities to kind of go to cooler markets than Terre Haute. but <laughs> <laughs> but, but somehow you ended up in Terre Haute. I, I, but i thought it was the right opportunity you got to follow your gut right real estate's all about following your gut so Worked there and got to work in the Carolinas. So even though I was based here in Indiana, I was still traveling to the Carolinas where I wanted to be. <laughs> and then ultimately, you know, you marry a Hoosier and you get I anchored in. <laughs> I know that story. So, <laughs> so you were you were there, and then at some point, right, the family business, right, Absolutely. calls you back. Yep. What. What made that decision for you? When did you decide, all right, I want to go back and work with my dad and my brothers? Uh, so it's a, actually more of a personal story for that. I, I was really happy with where I was at. Thompson Thrift's a great organization, but my mom got sick. Yeah. And so, you know, timing, family's always first. And so that's my big belief is family first and time was limited. So we, um, you know, basically all the family came back. And so I, but I the time my dad was kind of the old school guy who's like each deal was kind of, you know, done with a handshake with him and his buddies. And, you know, he never really had a branded development arm. I said, Hey, if I'm coming back, I don't really want to just work for the management company. I want to kind of get the development arm going again during the downturn of, you know, the OA 09 recession, he put a big brakes on it and being 70, he didn't really care to kind of start that back up again. So I said, all right, well, here's the deal. Let's brand it and let's kind of create that, you know, development arm going again. And it was fun. I mean, it's been fun and it's family. So you got a lot of cooks in the kitchen that you're kind of fighting with. <laughs> or, I mean, having fun with, right, right. <laughs> you know, there's good days and bad days and, you know, that's, but that's any business and, you know, it's, a little, you get a little bit of different 
temperature in the room like sometimes when it's family, right? So you, you speak to each other a little differently sometimes, but we have to put the pause, hey, this is business still. We have, you know, so we could still come around the Thanksgiving you know, table and not want to kill each other. <laughs> but yeah, you know, ultimately it was family driven to kind of, you know, we could all be together and kind of have that and kind of let my dad spend as much quality time as possible. And, and that was kind of the big reason uh, to kind of come back and do what I wanted and yet kind of grow the company again. So That's great. Well, so what was your first project? You come back, we're getting development restarted. You were at Thompson where there was probably a high volume and yeah. that's what you guys did there. Now you're working with your dad, brothers, obviously your mom's sick. There's a lot going on. Yep. What was the first project when you kind of started MR3's development arm? Yeah. So we were, by intent was basically, uh, I had a buddy representing Starbucks. And so I was going to go run out and do a whole bunch of single tenant strip center stuff. And, um, we realized that that's not as easy because everyone's chasing that <laughs> <laughs> crowded trade. Right? Uh, I mean, so we did a couple single tenant stuff because of the opportunities, but realistically we started tying up big sites. And so it was kind of a quick turn and we, Got into a project pretty quickly up in Westfield. So we got right. 50 acres up there, Westfield, Indiana, you know, northern submarket of uh, Indianapolis. And so that's kind of one of the big ones that really kind of took time other than, you know, single tenant daycare deal and stuff like that. That sure. Those aren't the one offs. And- yeah. The, but those are why we started. And then we realized like, this isn't fun. fun. <laughs> <laughs> it's not fun. Uh, I mean, just cause you're, you're fighting, you're grinding, you're getting down to the, like, you know, pennies to, you know, and it just, right. it, the battles are, you know, but then you realize the bigger ones, there's just bigger battles. <laughs> well, that's right. And there's a lot of battles going on today. So right. talk to me about the Westfield project legends crossing. Yeah. It's been how many years in the making now? I think we, I want to say 2019, 20, something like that. Okay. So pre COVID we had a, that one was really interesting. We had a movie theater. We were selling a five acre parcel to a movie theater to anchor. We we're going to do a lifestyle shopping center surrounded by outlots. I mean, it was going to be, you know, what you see in all your premier, you know, neighborhoods and, right. you know, being Westfield, it has, you know, very high demographics. So really good, fluent population. It was awesome it was a really cool layout and uh covet hit and the movie theater filed bankruptcy right right <laughs> so, so first project back uh, with the family right you know you go this is mr3 this is going to be a huge project picked a great community for those of our listeners that don't know westfield it's a rapidly growing suburb in in, in northern indianapolis and you know this is your guys first big swing yeah and a couple months in you know, this, this flu out of China <laughs> shuts the world economy down. Yeah, absolutely. Right? And so talk to me, retail like office space got a lot of bad rap. What's, what's the reality with retail right now? You know, I think the best thing that COVID brought was change. Mm-hmm. It forced change. It forced change from the retailer's perspective to basically how do you emerge to be stronger? Cause the stronger, companies are going to be successful and those that don't change weren't going to succeed. And, you know, we saw that with, you know, the big, we're seeing that still to this day, you know, the JC pennies of the world, right. right. Um, you know, it's completely changed that Simon acquired him. And so that, ha- that, that industry couldn't figure out how to change. And so it failed. Right. But then, you know, you have retailers that figured out the omni channel and those who were in front of the omni channel were able to do it more successful and get that e-commerce sales. So even though the stores were closed, 
the bricks and mortars, sales were still being successful because people were paid to stay home. And so what are you going to do? You're bored, right? I mean, I laughed. I saw an article about, you know, Amazon's favorite friend is like a bottle of wine, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I it's think like, Paige is pretty guilty of that. Yeah, I actually got yelled at about my Amazon shopping this morning. Yeah. <laughs> so. you know, I mean, how many people probably laugh about it? It's like, oh, drank a glass of wine, you know, when mm-hmm. drinking and Amazon shopping, right? It's the same concept, right? So go online, you're bored. You, what are you going to do? You're staying at home. You're staring at each other for 24 hours a day. Everyone's going crazy. If you have kids like we did, young ones at the time, still young, but you know, they're trying to, how do you manage that? You know, you don't, you need to get the energy out, but you can't go anywhere. You can't go to a park. You can't go play with friends. You can't do anything. And so it's, you know, you're home shopping. (laughs) So the Omni channel, those who were in front of it succeeded more. And then everyone else had to, it forced the change. Um, And I think that was a big part of it is it exposed the weaknesses to those brands that were falling behind and accelerated that, you know, that change. I actually worked retail during the start of COVID. And we had our doors closed to the public for two months, but we pivoted and started filling online orders. And that's the only way I was able to keep a job and pay my employees. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. Paige is really modest. I mean, she she was worked at Nordstrom's for 12 years? Nordstrom, no S. But yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's yeah. my accent coming out. I don't <laughs> that, know that's a, that's an yeah. office and industrial yeah. guy for you. Yeah. <laughs> that's like Yinzer coming out of Nordstrom's downtown. Like, well, if anyone was listening to it, they'd be like, oh my God, you didn't correct him? So yeah, I had no, to it's okay. I say a lot of things wrong. Paige no. <laughs> knows. She hears me on the phone all day making up words. Yeah. Well, um, you, you yeah. know, Pittsburgh has its own dialect. I know. (laughs) Believe me, I know. (laughs) But, you know, Paige, what did did you see kind of from the front lines, right? Because you you started in retail 09? Yeah, 09. 09, Right out of college. Right out of college. Mm -hmm. Different world, right? So we're all about the same age. The world was different. What did you see kind of working in a major retailer, a well-known international name, what changed with COVID? Well, just COVID, just the economy. I mean, e-commerce. everything changed the second that e-commerce really took off. We had to find a way to keep up or the competition was going to take over, which was Amazon. So we started filling online orders. Gosh, maybe 2012 from stores, which salespeople in stores hated because all of their inventory was going out to these online orders. But the store managers and the buyers loved it because it was just giving people more availability to get product to them quicker. So COVID was a whole nother thing because the doors were closed for two months. You know, I managed the rack at the time, which is an off price business of Nordstrom. And we had never done online orders from a price point that was about $29.97. And if you've ever walked into a rack, it's not extremely organized all the time. So trying to find one pink shirt for $11 is like finding a needle in a haystack. So a lot of challenges there, but they we overcame it and we were able to make it successful and keep the doors open. So it's almost like in some parts of retail, it's almost like more industrial now, where it's final mile in a lot of ways. I think that's the future of retail. Be honest, right? Pick but, up in store, you know, well, order online, and then you know, go. even think about bigger scale than that. Let's use Uber Eats or Grubhub. Right. You know, what's the difference between if an Uber driver is picking up food or picking up shirt from rack and delivering it? It's going to become more and more of a last mile. It's, they already have these leases in place and they're they, well located. They're well located and you can get it within them, you know, an hour or two. Right. I mean, that's their way to be competitive. And especially with the formats, right? So Andrew, over your career, right? Formats of these centers, formats of malls, you've seen a lot of change 
there too, right? Is kind of reckoning to some of these forces. What do you, what do you kind of see the future of if it's more service-based, food-based, experience-based? What do you, how do you see the format of what we think of power centers? What do we think of, I mean, obviously grocery is not going away, but do you see changes coming down the pike there with online orders and Instacart and things like that on how, even how as a developer, you have to think about your site plan? Oh, I think so. Very much so. I've just access to parking, quick parking, drive-throughs. I mean, you probably see these prototypes in the retail world. You know, they're now putting, you know, three, four drive-throughs or, you know, it's, then you're also dealing with it. And we have this issue, you know, with a national retailer that's, you know, QSR, that's great in the chicken concept. And the neighbors are starting to push back, right? Because they're like, you have so many cars that are now coming and you're flooding the streets like they're and you know you go read online but you know what you're not seeing is, is they're moving these cars so quick that all they see is you're just driving all this traffic and you know it's just about how do you lay out those plans so that you have those overflow right so it's code may say you only need 15 cars in a stack but you need 50 mm-hmm. just to be able to manage that so that it's not affecting other users, right? Because right. that's ultimately when you start affecting other users, then that space becomes vacant. Yeah. Because right. they're not right. going to be successful and you really don't want a dark spot in retail, right? Because you, that it hurts other brands. So you, a warm center, you know, activity drives more activity. So you just got to make sure when you're laying out that you have these kind of the flexibility and kind of contingency planning for six brands that are being extremely successful and, you know, have already been ahead of the curve so that when COVID hit, they were already ready to implement. And you're seeing more and more users go to these bigger drive-thrus. Right. You're like Chick-fil-A, right? I yeah. Mean, they're, they're a big one of them. <laughs> well, if you look at, and this is, I'm not as you know, nearly an expert in this, but I, I look at just how their drive-thru is formatted just from a logistical standpoint. And it's so different. You know, McDonald's is probably the other one that's kind of, more forward thinking, but everyone else hasn't evolved their drive through. I think you're seeing a lot of that change though. Are you, you know, you kind of stayed in that same concept. Like I think Taco Bell just announced a new layout with, I think four drive throughs, you know, Mm -hmm. basically kind of like the rally style where you have them on both sides. (laughs) Now who knows if these actually take off, but yeah, these, some of these concepts are pretty crazy. You know, I think Shake Shack is another one that just came out with a new layout with more drive throughs, you know, raising canes, they're coming out with it. But you know, if you actually talk to way the layouts, the the engineers for the Chick-fil-A's it's efficiencies. It's about, they want, they have a number and it's like misquoting 22 seconds. And they want to make sure from order to pick up 22 seconds. Now shake takes 25 seconds. So you don't want the guy who's ordering the milkshake, that one order of a milkshake to screw up the whole line behind you. So they have these bypass lanes. They have these ways to keep the order moving and to keep the efficiencies because they don't want any more than, again, I'm probably using the wrong number, but like 22 seconds, but it is that kind of meticulously designed and laid out for that kind of a plan. Well, for the customer, it's all about the speed and convenience. Correct. So for example, the Starbucks by me, the drive-thru was closed for three days. And every morning I would drive through and I was like, well, I'm not getting out of my car to go in to get a coffee. This is ridiculous. So then I drove half a mile down the street where there was another one and got my coffee that way. But I was like, dang, I wonder how much business they're losing from their drive through being closed for three days. Oh, I'm 
huge. Yeah. And think about it, even though their cost, their ticket is pretty small, right? right. It's a Starbucks called average tickets, $5. It's getting more up there, but yes. uh, I, I, <laughs> you could tell I'm not a Starbucks drinker. Right? I'm, a conv- I'm the Good convenience Duncan. guy. Cause this is closer to me. <laughs> yeah. There you go. <laughs> I mean, donuts. but it, we're pattern, you know, we're just the nature of patterns and that's who humans are. And so we become a society lazy. Right. Right. So we can't go an extra two seconds out of our way or we don't want to park and get out of our car. So these brands are recognizing that and they're driving our culture and driving our, you know, the way we operate. If you think about it, yeah, because you know, if they do it and lay it out that way, then you're naturally going to have to do that. And so they're, they're forcing us to change our habits too. Yeah. Which is sometimes in the wrong direction because we don't want to get out of our car. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Well, and you feel for these, the retail workers these days because everyone can order it and have it at their door that day. But what if I'm a customer who I want to walk into a store, buy something for a wedding that I'm going to tomorrow, and then I don't have it? And then it's disappointing for me as a customer. And then the salesperson who's on commission is like, great, well, <laughs> there goes my lunch. Right. Right. That's a real thing. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, and the other thing I'm thinking about with all this, Andrew, and you and I have had a lot of conversations about the the functional obsolescence. Oh yeah. Right. And so, and I think we look at all asset classes right now and I think there's buildings that are just functionally obsolete. Right. I think the trend you're talking about with retail is what is the retail center that was built 20 years ago? How does it compete when you're building something new that's well thought out based on, you know, the tenant mix you're looking to drive, right? Master plan properly, you know, but there was a center built 20 years ago down the road, similar demographics as you, but it's going to struggle in some cases, right? And we see that with malls as a, for instance, the ones that were built in the eighties, right? The DeBartlows, the, the Simon malls from that era are struggling. Well, I mean, think ways, about right? real estate, right? It's immobile. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, so now you have this huge asset Think malls, right? Especially malls are huge center of gravity. And now we've put, and you can't physically just pick up and move that mall because demographics changed or traffic patterns have changed. You just can't. So then it's, how do you redesign that? And I think even with the big announcement, uh, you know, with um, Simon this past week, this week, they're realizing that, that they can't just be a retail REIT. They have to be place making and how do you recreate that place? And, you know, it's bringing in those heads and beds, creating experiences, creating driving more activity than just coming to shop and picking up that shirt from Rack or wherever it is. Now, I think the users such as like Rack, it is part of the bargain hunt. So that's kind of actually what drives people to come into the store mm-hmm. is I think that's where they don't need to be as successful on the Omni channel than maybe just a regular Nordstrom because, you know, here's what's on the rack. Right. or what's out on Nordstrom, but like rack, you're kind of coming and you know, going. Like it's, it's kind, kind of, of the, the hunt, part, right? right? It's, mm-hmm. it's also part of the fun, right? Right. It's kind of finding that like deal on those, you know, that pair of shoes that you didn't even think that they would carry. Right. And then you kind of feel like you're winning, even though you're sp- still spending your money, but you're like, Hey, I didn't spend $300 on that pair of shoes. I got them for 150. I've said that line way too many times in my house. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you probably picked up four other things along the way. Oh, Correct. absolutely. Right? Yeah. Can you, what were you talking about that Simon announced this week in case people don't know, like myself? So they just announced they're buying 50% of Jamestown. So they're a really great real estate yep. development, placemaking, comp development, property management company. So it's just a, you know, 
they're just going to be changing the way I think forward thinking. I think they're going to be Simon's looking at this way as a partnership to be able to help some of their malls that are, you, you know, physically in a node that just needs to drive more activity and, you know, parking is changing, right? So the needs for parking have changed in some markets. We don't need as much parking because we need them in the drive through lanes, Right. right. But city code hasn't allowed that. So then when you bring in more mixed uses, you're allowed to kind of do the shared parking analysis. So now you can put more retail into a spot or more housing and still kind of use that same parking ratios because it's now what you're using during the day for retail is now the same as what's using it at night for the residential. Right. So now you just create more density in a market which is good for communities to be forward thinking on their zoning to allow more of that because ultimately helps the tax revenue yeah. and the commercial real estate is what helps most communities. Cause you know, we're not really using the services, right? We're not putting kids in school. Right. So the school taxes are gaining it from commercial real estate. So the more commercial real estate you have, the better for the tax basis. You brought up code and zoning a lot. <laughs> and I know that this is a big part of your world every single day. What what are you seeing, right? There's a lot in the news about nimbyism, not in my backyard, right? You sit in front of these town open hearings. You've presented at them. You've gotten to hear public's feedback. What are you seeing across the country? What's the trend been? Where are some you know, communities that are doing it well? Where are some communities? And you don't have to call names out. You can give examples instead to protect the guilty. But you know, where, where are communities, hypothetically, that are, are really struggling with certain things to really adapt? Because it sounds like we have a ton of change going on just in the needs to adjust to these things. But zoning and code, you, got, you, you and I both know, they don't catch up really quick. Right. Right? So where are you seeing the biggest friction and where are you seeing communities being really progressive and, and forward thinking on some of this? That's a hard question. That's a, that's a deep question. You know, <laughs> change is always hard. And especially when you go through government agencies that, you know, there's processes that need to be done to get public input and do all that. And, you know, people don't like to do change, right? I've lived in this house and it's been this way forever. Why would I want my neighborhood to change now? Well, they're also not seeing what's already changed in the last mm -hmm. 20 years during that 50 year change, right? Like the community has gotten better They're They bought their house for $50,000 and now it's worth, you know, $400,000, right? I mean, right. welcome to inflation too. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about um, that. Oh, I'm, I'm sure we will. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think naturally people are afraid of change. They don't, you know, they want, like you said, not my backyard, but someone else said that about them when they moved to that community, just remember that, like we all came from somewhere. So we had to originally move in. Someone else probably argued it, but they don't come with facts. So like I get these feelings. I feel traffic. I feel you're going to do this, but there's, where's the facts behind it? I ha I've paid my, you know, civil engineer, or I've paid for my architect to do certain things or my traffic engineer. Here's the facts. What you're arguing is not true. Now, I'm willing to work with you. And I think that's where there still needs to be more efforts because I feel like people come in and just say no, and then it becomes friction right mm -hmm. from the beginning. When you have the opportunity to kind of really work with the community, it, it's always better to get the, 
get the opportunity to kind of listen on the front end. But again, you're always going to have those handful of people that are just super outspoken. And remember, those who are most outspoken are a minority, because, right. but they're the loudest, right? Yeah. And people who don't really have an issue don't come and talk. Right. So you don't really get the majority of the people saying, oh yeah, I'm okay with it. This is great. Right. It's that scenario. So then you have communities that just drag out the process. <laughs> right. right. And I mean, I don't know. I mean, there's just some that just. Right. Just, Where the zonings they, are. They want to wear you out. Right. And then you have to go get a use permit and it takes six months and you got to pay a land use attorney six figures. You got to pay for a new traffic study, even though one was done originally by the developer and you yep. got to justify this and you have to submit your business case. You got to go in front of a hearing and then you have to go to a minor site committee and then you have to go to a major site committee. And then you got to get blessings by both, but those take 60 days apiece, and you can't get them concurrently. You have to get them one after another. This is a real community I'm describing on the East coast. Oh, I right. No. It took one year to get a use permit with the zoning already in place in a you know suburban community for an industrial building. I'm doing a Chick-fil-A deal in South Florida. It's taken me two years. Yeah. And I still don't even have, I, last night I got my vote. And what, what is that property today? It's a zoned commercial piece of property that is allowed to have a Chick-fil-A on it. And there's no tenant in there today. It's a hotel. It's a hotel today. So that's yeah. RB one zoning that allows for, you know, fast food restaurants, right? Zero variances, right? Two years, two years. And you're not done yet. I just got approval site plan approval site plan approval. I haven't even had building permits yet. Right. So let's talk about another in this related to this, right? So I have up on my screen from Bloomberg this morning, treasury yields spiking CPI above expectation, right? So inflation's continuing to run wild. And we know right there at the bottom, Fed swaps fully priced three quarter interest rate hike in November, right? So while you've been working a deal, right? Prepping the site, getting pricing, doing all this, you know, the feds raise interest rates from basically boo zero to, you know, three and three quarters we're sitting at today. And it's going up from here. Plus inflation has been raging at eight, eight and a half percent on your materials for the site. Eight, eight and a half. You mean like 20? 20? Well, yeah, for, for specifically the commodities we're talking about. Yeah. Right. You're right. How are you guys dealing with that challenge? Well, these are the battles that I was talking about and referencing. Um, a lot of it is, trying to figure out how and where, you know, part of real estate is you're always trying to mitigate risk exposure. Right. So that's the biggest thing is, is how do you mitigate your risk exposure? So I don't know. I mean, I kind of have to push through, right. I'd get a change order for cost and I'm like, Oh my gosh, this is ridiculous. Like what's going on? Asphalt's, I mean, cost of oil's up. I mean, everything moves around to oil, like whatever we want to talk about, but every commodity yeah. is being moved in a construction industry by diesel. Right. And then you put asphalt down. So all these huge change orders. Now, some of them, I don't know if they're real or they just feel like now's the time to get their money when they can. But yeah, okay, I get it. Costs are up. But you have to, I mean, what are you going to do? Stop building a building halfway through? So then you have to go and get more rent. Right. So, but the issues are times aren't really trying to keep up as fast. You know, CPI, I'm waiting for the day when I can start putting CPI into my retail leases. Right. Like, you know, they want to fix, they want, and, and, you know, yeah, we got them in office. Why can't we have them in industrial? You know, it's, I'll do three and a half percent annual increases or CPI, but I bet you your tenant will, I bet you would never recommend that to sign that for your tenant. Never. No way. (laughs) But it's, you know, you, you got a floor and you got a protection, but why you want to stiff me, but I'm exposed now. So how do I get across that when, you know, 
we're at eight and a half percent, eight percent. Well, I think we're going to start seeing it. I mean, candidly, and you know, our team does a lot of work in Europe and Asia. In Europe in particular, almost all the leases are indexed based on European CPI across the board. And our our clients used to think nothing of it. For the last 10 years, it's been less than 2% across Western EU countries, right? right? So they're like, sure, I'll sign up for that, right? Versus a fixed 2% bump. You go, well, we might get one and three quarters, one and a half. Great. We got calls this year where, you know, heads of finance were going, um, Hey, I was reading these European leases and um, they're going to go up by 10%, 11% in some cases overnight, right? And so, you know, there was a big awakening there. I do think you're right. There is a gap between tenant landlord market making and what the reality of the capital markets are doing. But, you know, do you forecast, you know, and, and as you guys just think about this overall, with all these pressures, something's got to give at some point for some developers in some of these projects, right? Well, I mean... Absolutely. So, I mean, think about it. If you have a cap at 5% annual increases or even common area maintenance, right? Let's think about that for a second. So, and for our listeners, that means a cap on the expenses. On my expenses. Tenant landlord negotiate a lease and the tenant says, Hey, Mr. Landlord, you cannot increase our expenses by more than 5% per year. Right? Well, great. Fertilizer's up. Am I not supposed to mow my lawn? And, or do you not, or do you want weeds in your yard? Like, do you want it run like a class A facility that you are part of, or do I cut something out of the budget because fertilizer's at 22% higher, 50% higher or whatever. I mean, I'm just using fertilizer because of the war in Ukraine. I mean, that, that has a huge impact on everything. Um, and I think that's a lot driving a lot of this as well. You know, again, oil and OPEC and everything we're seeing, you know, we're a global society, whether we like it or not, you know, we're trying to change some of that and being able to have a lot more chip manufacturers here in America, which is phenomenal had helping prop up our industry, but you know, it's, where does that break? And I think sometimes you have to get hit in the face with it to actually acknowledge and realize that. But when the tenant can drive a ship, on that. And they're like, well, we don't need to do a deal or do you depending on what it is. Right. So industrial there's low vacancies. They need the space, but office, right. It's a different bird. It's a different, totally different situation where it's like, no, I want a cap here. It is what it is. I mean, do I start turning off my air conditioning? Do I cut out the janitorial? What, at what point do I, you know, you have to cut corners. I got to cut corners because guess what? The cost of an employee is up. Right. Right. Cost of everything is up. So at what point can I cap? I mean, I have to cut. If I'm like, if I'm capped, what I can do for you to, for your quality of life, then I have to cut something out. And now you're going to start complaining. And on, ultimately as the landlord, you want to have a happy tenant. Right. It's a marriage. Yeah. It truly is a marriage. You want them you want to renew. To, you want them to stay there forever. Right? Yeah. So then you end up having bigger issues. And so, well, here's the issue. You know, a CPI is an easy way of doing that. Right. But, but at the same know, time, it's it's it, too much risk for tenants. <laughs> well, two years ago, no one cared because inflation was 2% plus or minus, And it was almost like you set your watch to it. And oh, yeah, it's 2%. Prices are kind of just gradually you know, going up in perpetuity. Great. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, right, all this hits. And all of a sudden we realize like, oh, yeah, there's there's forces in the market here that are well beyond our comprehension or we can't predict these things. But you bring up an interesting point, right? Like with industrial, I feel like a lot of that conversation is a little bit easier because the maintenance day-to-day janitorial on those buildings, especially single tenant buildings are not as heavy, but office space, you're right. 
I mean, so this morning, Castle Systems on Bloomberg released, uh, they, they spoke. So Castle Systems does security card readers for a lot of the Class A towers in, in, in Manhattan, right? Right now, 30%, 37% occupancy on average per week. That means people come in 1.75 days a week, right? And, you know, I know you guys don't have any positions in, you know, cl- Class A or B office buildings right now. I think you have. We, we actually still have some. Oh, you still have we sold few. off about three quarters okay. of a million square feet. Pre-COVID, you know the office, but game. we still have some, right? Yeah. So we were working on class a office right now, but we're focused towards technology and life science, right? Which is different. And we'll talk totally about different that, monster. Right? Yeah. But we're talking your average run of the mill office building, right. right? Anywhere USA, whether it's CBD suburban and 1.75, you know, days per week employees are coming in, but you know how those leases are written. You're going to provide janitorial between this and this. Maybe you have a day porter based on all these certain specs for a deal that was cut four or five years ago, back when things were quote unquote normal and landlords paying a janitor to empty, empty waste bins because no one's in the office, right? It's less toilet paper being used. Yeah. But you know, there's a cost savings, (laughs) Yeah, right? Well, that's true. Right. And there's puts and takes, but I don't think the cost of toilet paper, because, you know, candidly, every class A office building. Maybe the beginning of 2020. Yeah. I mean, let's be honest. We weren't putting Charmin Ultra Plush in these office (laughs) buildings, right? Let's be real. Hey, we actually locked up our toilet paper during COVID because we saw people walking out with it. Yeah. Oh, I believe it. Right. You know, you didn't know, right. There was toilet paper runs. That was real. (laughs) It was a real thing. Crazy to think that was like two years ago. But then, then it leads into things like parking, right? So on a number of projects we've worked on for CBD headquarters deals across the country, figuring out a parking arrangement that makes sense for hybrid work is, I mean, there's still not a really good answer. I'll be honest, right? We've been chipping away at these with parking operators and others, but how do you come up with a parking ratio when on Mondays you might have 10 or 15% occupancy or utilization of that parking agreement and Tuesday through Thursday, maybe it's 60 or 70%, right? Well, this is your world much more than mine with the tenant side. Uh, I'd love to pick your brain actually on that and just say, okay, well, like we want to activate our urban cores again. People are only coming 1.75 days a week. How do you get people in the office? Are you providing parking? Are you not providing parking? Is that now the conversation where you now have to provide as a landlord or as a tenant? Mm Mm-hmm. Are you yeah. providing it for your employees or not? And what's that cost? Well, there's, and that's a difficult question to answer, but I'll kind of answer it in two ways, right? One is, and we haven't talked about it today, but I mean, there is a labor shortage, right? Right. I mean, all the numbers, even jobless claims, and et cetera, are still very low on a historical basis, right? And so for white collar workers, if they want their people back in the office, one thing they've realized is they can't force them. I think there's been enough PR and media about that where senior executives have come out and said, hey, you're coming back to the office. And those people said, nope, we're not. And they stare down some pretty you know, big names in business. Jamie Dimon is, for instance, right? And JP Morgan employees said, Haha, yeah, right. <laughs> we're not doing that. And, you know, to some extent, you know, I think we're going to see that hold for now. Now, as a reaction to that, most corporate occupiers have been thinking about how do we incentivize people to come back? How do we make it appealing? Because what they found out is once they reopened their offices, people went, great, I would love to come down and see uh, what, what my colleagues have been up to. They come back to their office and they forgot, oh yeah, I have to, I have to pay for parking. Oh, I got to walk two blocks to my office. 
got to go up an elevator with other people. I can't wear yoga pants, <laughs> right? You know what I mean, right? And, and, and I think this has kind of created this where it's like, that's hard, right? Because I created this new routine where I let my dog out. I visit with my kids. I can log off and go have my favorite snack at any time I want. I can, you know, go outside and sit on my patio and work on emails and then I could come back into my desk and work. And a lot of people have really liked that. Oh, agreed. Absolutely. And so how do you compete with that? And that's what companies are trying to figure out right now because they realized I need to give the carrot. I can't give the stick because if I use the stick, people are going to leave and go to my competitors. Right. In, in this current environment, that may change. Maybe we but, need a good recession. So that people like need to need to keep feel like they need their job. Right. But I mean, I, I say that in an ignorant way. But then, but, there's, but then there's the class of workers, right? And we'll use the insurance industry as a frank, for example, where a large majority of their office footprint was tied up with people working on what I call individual contributor work, right? And these are jobs they're they're processing claims. They are answering phones for customers. And with the technology now and mobile headsets, things like that, those jobs can easily be done at home. Collaboration is not as critical. And as a result, I think long term, you know, that office demand that existed for that type of product is not coming back. Right. I think, you know, and I think that's to that functional obsolescence that we've talked about with retail and, you know, the trend of the 80s and 90s of these mega malls, right? Kind of changing into in the 2000s, what was it? Lifestyle centers and open air. Similar format, but different. Right. Like Clay Terrace in Indianapolis is Absolutely. a great example of that. Eaton Town Center in Columbus, Ohio is mm-hmm. kind of the, what I call the marquee of that era, right? I think offices are going to go through the same existentialism where we almost look at, okay, what do we do with the five per thousand suburban office, 50,000 square foot floor plate, you know, call center? Because no one's going to be jam packing those people with 2,000 workers coming in five days a week anymore. Those people are working from home or those jobs are being offshored to right. lower cost countries, period, because we want things good, quicker and cheaper. And then the other thing in reality is technology becomes last mile, right? <laughs> well, buildings just exactly, got to go, right? That's what Dermody properties bought the Geico uh, up in Northbrook, Illinois, yep. million square feet. They're turning into light industrial and, and final mile. And I think we're going to see more of that. And I do think part of the answer, to be honest with you, Andrew lies in, in my opinion, cities need to take a proactive approach in incentivizing conversion projects, even in some suburbs. Oh, agreed. Right. And, and I think, you know, we look at Indianapolis and we look at the North side, there's a lot of buildings that were built in the eighties that quite frankly, aren't very appealing to the modern office tenant, you know, oh, yeah. without some material capital investment and reformatting or, or can those sites be converted to things like housing for rent, market rate, affordable, or even for sale product, right? How do we look at those well-located areas, right? They usually have a good amount of land site, and we know housing is an issue in a lot of these communities, especially affordable housing or affordable price points. Well, there's a big part of that is affordable housing. And I think that's where communities have really hurt themselves because they said, okay, you have this flurry ratios and how many units per acre or whatever it is that their zoning only allows you to build so much, but we should be allowing more density because you know, the cost, there's so much fixed costs. So if you can get more units on, then you don't need an X rent. You don't need a twelve twenty five hundred dollars 
a month apartment. You could build, do it for 2000 or 1800 or so you could start lowering rent costs down by creating more units on that same 20 acres. So that's one way to, you know, we go back to the city is we got, you know, cities got to get more progressive. Mm-hmm. So especially in urban cores where, you know, housing is always going to be needed, I think. Right. But, you know, the, then the conversion, so these outdated. Now the suburbans, suburban markets, you know, those are the ones that I think need to look at these office spaces the hardest. Right. Yes, you need people downtown. People are going to naturally always be attracted to downtown. That's where your civic centers are always are going right. to be. Your baseball stadiums, your football stadiums, where people want to be. And so then naturally other entertainment. So again, our economy has gone to a, more of an entertainment-based concept. So then maybe just conversion, which isn't easy to no. from an office to a residential conversion. That's not easy or cheap. So, but that's where cities can, you know, incentivize projects because, but the suburban ones, just like we talked about in the retail world, a cold shopping center doesn't help the shop at Correct. tenants, but a cold, dark office building does not help a community, especially if it's at your gateway. And so, and where are your commercial office buildings typically in gateways up to communities because it's easy in, easy out, very good visibility. You know, you got to get that big tenant signage, right? So right everyone's, everyone's got to everyone's <laughs> see it. Right. And they have these big parking lots. Yeah. And so they're sitting empty in some cases that doesn't breed activity. And then you think about the tax base, right? A parking lot it's doesn't, going down, right? It's, it's vacant land. Yeah. It's what I call suburban farmland is empty parking lots. And I think communities that are uh, more into the understanding of, of a, a TIF tax increment financing, um, you know, being able to capture that and improve their communities are the ones that are going to be the most successful. And the ones that are older don't really take on that role because they just say, well, we're, we've been around forever. We're just going to continue around and you figure it out. But then you're realizing without incentives, they're not getting done. You know, city of Pittsburgh yep. is one of them. I'm doing big project in city of Pittsburgh and it's just a very difficult, the costs are high infrastructure's old in the market. I have to do a lot of work and the rents just aren't there. So how do I get the deal across the finish line? That's right. Well, that's a good question. And then the tax basis. So now we just sit on a, basically on a vacant property for how long? Thanks for listening to part one of episode one. If you'd like to hear part two, please join us next week as we continue the conversation with Andrew Mulner. Thank you to our executive producer and audio wizard, Chris Spangle at leadersandlegends.net. Also, thank you to my co-host and producer, Paige O'Neill. And finally, thank you to Colliers International for providing us space to use as our recording studio in downtown Indianapolis. If you like what you heard, please hit subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget to like or follow us on LinkedIn and YouTube at Urban Foundry Podcast.